welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. This summer, there's been a great deal in the news on the opioid lawsuit in Oklahoma and the multi-district litigation here in Cleveland. We've heard how communities and native tribes throughout the country have suffered at the hands of the pharmaceutical industry. And now, with Judge Bachman's ruling against Johnson & Johnson for $572 million, and Purdue Pharma's offering to settle for $12 billion and giving up their company, essentially, it appears that it's time to pay the piper. So we thought this would be a good time to weigh in on how to put the settlement money to best use. Together with Dr. Stephen Lloyd, who specializes in treating addiction at the Mountain Home Veterans Administration Medical Center in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Tom Stuber, the president and CEO of Lorain County Alcohol and Drug Abuse Services, a widely recognized expert in the recovery field, together we collaborated on an op-ed that was published today in USA Today. As we begin, Dr. Lloyd discussed how the premise for the op-ed was framed by his personal experience. For me, um, and a lot of people I know, and looking at success rates with doctors and airline pilots, the three tenets to uh, successful treatment are, uh, number one, uh, long-term, high-quality inpatient treatment. Uh, Number two, extended aftercare and follow-up for around five years. And three is uh, just a little bit of leverage. And if you look at that model with doctors and airline pilots, the success rates at five years are around 78 to 95%. and, And I actually fit in that. Uh, I've been in recovery now for 15 years as a result of that model. Dr. Lloyd spoke further on the three essential tenets of the program. That prolonged period in treatment uh, gave me time that otherwise I, I, wouldn't have, I would have never had. And uh, I'm grateful for that because I had a long history of physical and, and sexual abuse. And these were things that I'd always just plowed through and never, you know, never worked on. And that prolonged period of time really gave me time away from everything. Uh, without responsibilities with work or family or anything other than to just work on myself and, and able to get at the root of that childhood trauma. And not that I could, you know, not that I could relive it or not that I could repair it, but I could definitely uh, develop tools in order to deal with it and look at it in a way that, that wasn't threatening. It was no longer the, you know, I get, I, what I always called it is the, the boogeyman in the closet. It was no longer the boogeyman in the closet. And uh, while the past hasn't changed, Certainly my reaction to it and the effect that it has on me has changed. And Greg, I never would have gotten that opportunity without uh, uh, long-term treatment and in the atmosphere that was supportive and allowed me to do that. So it's the length of time that enabled you. It gave you that opportunity to dig down and and work on those things that were deeply rooted in you uh, 
and, and address those. Without a doubt. And, the, you know, at that time also allowed, you know, the, the frontal lobe of my brain to start to recover. And I didn't know that at the time, but I did know that each day it went by, each week that went by, it seemed like that I, I got a little bit sharper. You know, my memory got a little better. Uh, I was making better decisions. And, and, you know, I've since learned in the intervening 15 years that that's all frontal lobe recovery, losing access to the frontal lobe in the depths of trauma and addiction. And then with time, you know, particularly when you're given protected time to work on it, that frontal lobe starts to recover and we start to start to make better decisions, start to be able to deal with realities of life. And, and, and really the, the time was the key along with, the, you know, the high quality treatment. So you outlined for Tom Stuber all of the components and the staffing models for a plan like this. And you passed it along to him, didn't you? I did. Um, and, you know, we know that it's successful. And, and I said doctors and airline pilots, but if you look at that, uh, Greg, it's also the, the roughly the same model, not roughly the same model, it is the same model that's used in, in drug recovery courts. And, and we know the success rates of those. You know, 75% of all drug court graduates never get rearrested. You know, that's from the National Association of Drug Court Professionals. So I think the model definitely has validity. But, you know, medication for, for opioids, you know, quells cravings for opioids. It, it doesn't do a whole lot for methamphetamine or, or marijuana or, or stimulants, you know, uh, other stimulants like cocaine. So developing those tools are really what's necessary for, you know, for long-term, ab, you know, abstinence from all drugs. And, and I really think that, uh, you know, when you give people time to work on, on the things that we've discussed in that model, uh, that it's successful, it works. Tom Stuber shares how he took the staffing levels and essential components of the program to estimate the costs. The model that is being proposed includes a residential treatment stay with medication or withdrawal management and medication-assisted treatment. It includes a uh, placement in recovery housing with five-day-a-week partial hospitalization program or intensive outpatient program. It's expected that at some point the individual may reduce to three-day-per-week IOP in combination with other ancillary services, such as job training. And then the third phase is continued counseling, including group counseling, relapse prevention, individual counseling, focusing on trauma and co-occurring disorder treatment, and psychiatric and medical care, including uh, MAT services. We know that the addiction is a neurologically-based illness with significant emotional and social consequence. And due to the toxicity of the drugs, the individual has changed the structure and function of certain areas of the brain. Treatment is an opportunity to stabilize the brain and then foster its healing. We know that it takes a minimum of 35 weeks just for the brain to stabilize and could take as long as two years. And the treatment must focus in on specific functioning of the brain to help it heal as well as begin to develop the skills that will be necessary to deal with a life of recovery. The other uh, important component of the program is trauma. That trauma must be treated as a part of the entire treatment episode. The first level of care that was identified is residential, and I anticipate it will take an individual between 90 and 100 days of residential treatment. For my calculations, I used an average length of stay of 100 days. And the staffing that would be essential includes part-time psychiatrist, part-time physician and nursing staff, two shifts of registered nurse, a clinical officer, a relapse or addiction counselor, two shifts, 
trauma specialist one shift every day, and a family counselor five days a week, and peer support specialist for evening and um, midnight level of care. The phase one staffing expenses will generally come to about $48,452 per individual treatment. The uh, room and board would be about $12,500. And medication for the three-month episode would be $3,000. So a total cost of $63,952 for that level of care. Recovery housing, that would involve peer support staff 24-7 and transportation services to help get the individual to the ancillary care and the clinical care that they'll be receiving. And the cost estimated there for staffing, and again, the uh, I'm sorry, the uh, average length of stay would be considered about 160 days. And this is phase two. And that's phase two. And the importance of the 160 days following 100 days of residential treatment is that brings them to about three, or I'm sorry, 37 weeks of care that they've received in a um, safe, protected controlled environment as they begin to stabilize. And as I said before, it takes the brain 35 weeks just to stabilize. And it's during that time that they will be experiencing significant episodes of post-acute withdrawal. Post-acute withdrawal is uh, the brain going through its own episodes of withdrawal after the initial acute medical withdrawal occurs. Now, most organs during withdrawal are attempting to rebound or return to a normal level of functioning. And most organs affected by the drugs will rebound in 7 to 11 days. All organs except the brain. The brain will go through episodes in which uh, periodically and early on in the uh, recovery process, they will happen quite frequently and last for fairly long duration. And it's during these times that the individual, in spite of possibly working a very strong uh, recovery program, will wake up with a high level of anxiety, a high level of craving, and feeling like they'd used the night before. This is a time when they are extremely susceptible to relapse. And of course, relapse often leads to dropping out of treatment and or overdose and death. Phase one is the residential program that really focuses in on withdrawal management, MAT, and stabilizing the individual. And the cost of delivering that service is $63,952 per individual per treatment. The cost of phase two, which is the step down to recovery housing and ongoing rehabilitation on an intensive outpatient or partial hospitalization basis, uh, would cost $16,820 to cover the recovery housing component and $21,624. So the total for the rehabilitation, both residential and outpatient, would be about 102,396. Phase three is the ongoing uh, counseling or care that would be needed for an individual post this rehabilitation period. And that comes out to about 12,375 per year for clinical and medical services and $12,000 a year for medication for the medication assisted treatment. And that would be phase three. Total cost for a five-year episode of care that would include all of this comes to about $216,000.
And the reason for the five-year model, again, is that research indicates that an individual who receives five years of ongoing care is engaged for five years in their treatment and recovery has a 95% chance of lifetime recovery. I asked Dr. Lloyd to comment on the number that Tom Stuber had come up with for five years of treatment. Do you feel good about that number? I, I do feel good about that number. You know, I was I was thinking about that when I saw it because I did talk with Tom, and he's a great guy. And and, and when I saw the number, you know, at first it, it kind of shook me a little bit, but then I thought, you know, I'm an internist, Greg. That's what I... That's what I'm trained in. And if I have somebody that goes in uh, for open heart surgery, right, they're going to need triple vessel bypass. And so that's, a, you know, that's an extended, uh, extended operation. They're going to be under the anesthesia for several hours, and their heart's going to stop, and they're going to spend several days in the, in the uh, intensive care unit and then several more days on the step-down unit and then time in cardiac rehab and then ongoing lifelong therapy with antihypertensives, cholesterol-lowering medication, diabetes medication if necessary. What's the cost of that? You know, and, and, and so we, we look at this, and it's one of the things that, that I guess kind of irritates me a little bit is, is that we look at addiction differently. Well, $216,000, yes, that's a lot of money. But if I told you it was $216,000 to do cardiac bypass and treat you for the rest of your life as a result of that bypass surgery, I don't think, I don't think people blink an eye at that. And I think that the only, only way that you can do that is to look at addiction as a moral failure. And if you view it as a moral failure, then certainly I understand the, you know, kind of the, the, the sticker shock. But if you look at it as a, tr- a chronic, ongoing, a treatable condition, I think it's a, in line with everything else. And no, I don't think that number's out of line at all. Oftentimes, uh, folks that, um, that are heavy users, intravenous users, they end up with having to get a valve job. What's the cost of that? Yeah, same thing. You know, it didn't even go down that route, but they, they do. And, and here's the thing. If you don't treat them, a lot of them will get reinfected and need another one. So one of the things we're looking at right now are what are the costs to, you know, to do those valve replacements? Because here's the, here's the problem, Greg. Not the problem. Here's the issue. A lot of folks who are having that done are young. Yeah. Okay, so, 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 they, so, they get, so they get a heart valve replacement. They go through basically that same process I just outlined for you for open-heart surgery because it is an open-heart surgery. And then uh, if, if you don't treat them, they relapse, they get reinfected, and they need another heart valve, or they're so young that the valve is not going to last their lifetime. And so, yes, I think that in, in some ways it's actually a cost savings. And if you look at the, if you look at the other ramifications, so let's 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 carry that forward a little bit. At the cost, uh, say they happen to be incarcerated as a result of a relapse of drug use, and then how much it costs to keep them incarcerated, what the hit on the tax base is when you pull them out of the uh, of the tax paying citizen role, and if they've got kids in the family, the government services that have to be allocated to take care of them while they're incarcerated, you know, while the while the breadwinner is incarcerated. I, I think that I think that the cost is is really reasonable. I think that the uh, cost to society is a result. I mean, if we do same old, same old, we're going to continue to see a much lower incidence of success. We're going to see probably in the area of 40 to 50% be able to attain recovery. And as a result, the others are going to continue a uh, very destructive lifestyle. We'll continue to experience overdose and overdose deaths. We'll continue to be a a cost to society in terms of increased crime, um, increased expenses associated with addressing the overdoses, and uh, the community does not have that level of 
of resources to be able to continue to dedicate towards this. The, uh, I think the shoveling up research that was done early on in the opiate epidemic identified that the cost to society um, is significant and that for every dollar that is spent on um, addiction, 92 cents is spent on shoveling up the consequences. In 2009, the Center on Addiction at Columbia University completed a three-year study that revealed 95.6 cents of every dollar that governments spend on substance abuse and addiction went to paying for the wreckage, or what they call shoveling up. Here to comment on that is Lindsay Volo, who's the Director of Health Law and Policy at the Center of Addiction. Comment on that. Boy, that just seems so extreme. 95.6 cents of every dollar that governments spend goes on paying for the wreckage? That's right. Yeah. So the study was on the cost of substance use and addiction. Um, so looking at all substances, alcohol, tobacco, and drugs to federal, state, and local governments. And the study found that in 2005, the total cost was $46.7 billion. That's nearly half a trillion dollars. And, all, and less than 2% of those costs went to prevention and treatment. The majority, as you said, went to paying for the consequences of untreated addiction. So the report is actually called Shoveling Up because it found that the spending on substance use is so heavily skewed towards shoveling up against the problem rather than investing in solutions. And these are taxpayer dollars. So what we found is that 95% of taxpayer money is spent on the consequences while only 2% is spent on solving the problem. I think that there's a sense that I'm getting that it's a pay me now or pay me later when it comes to your recovery programs. Could you comment on that? Yeah. So if we invest in the solutions, if we, this is a preventable and treatable disease, and we know how to prevent it and treat it. And what we know is that we can't afford not to invest in the solutions because we're paying a much higher price for the consequences of untreated addiction than we would pay if we invested in prevent, effectively preventing and treating it. And that's both from an economic standpoint and also from a, a really a humanity standpoint. There are so many families who are needlessly losing loved ones to a disease that is both preventable and treatable. We also suspect that there is more funding that has been dedicated to treatment since 2005. And in recent years, the federal government has provided um, billions of dollars in increased funding, including grants to states to address the opioid epidemic. But nonetheless, an increase of a few billion dollars in funding for treatment is still eclipsed by the hundreds of billions in cost of untreated addiction. And according to national surveys, treatment rates have barely increased since 2005. So we still have a long way to go to adequately fund treatment and ensure that people who need help receive it. And despite the crisis, we haven't seen an increase in prevention for funding either. There have been studies that show that for every dollar spent on addiction treatment, that yields a $4 savings in healthcare expenses, as well as a $7 savings in criminal justice costs. So we know that it is cost effective to invest in addiction treatment. Now I'd like to share our op-ed, which began as a rough draft on a drive through the Arizona desert in August. It's titled, The Opioid Crisis the right way to spend billions in settlement money. When the Food and Drug Administration approved OxyContin in 1995, it lit a match that set off an inferno. By allowing the addictive painkiller to be prescribed for a broad range of ailments, 
the FDA unwittingly instigated the worst health crisis our country has known. Now, nearly a quarter of a century into the opioid crisis, it's clear the pharmaceutical industry duped the government into believing opioids were safe to freely prescribe for almost any ailment. By the time we realized we were in a health crisis, thousands of people had already lost their lives, and countless communities had been financially and emotionally devastated just trying to keep pace with the tsunami of overdoses. In America today, hundreds of thousands of families will never be whole again. Their families changed forever the day they lost their loved ones to the opioid epidemic. Some bury themselves in work to try to forget. Others dedicate much of their time to fighting the opioid epidemic to keep the spirit of their loved ones alive. Still others remain indefinitely paralyzed by the grief as they try to make sense of their new normal. But all are united through a tragic life's experience that will remain with them forever. As money from legal settlements and judgments against drug companies becomes available, a place must be reserved in the conversation for this group of people, of whom I'm a member, who have lost so much. Money can't replace our loved ones, so what do we do? Well, we can begin by realizing that recovery from opioid addiction depends on recognizing it for what it is, a lifelong chronic brain disease that must be managed like any other disease. But all too often in our country today, the programs that provide the most resources and offer the most help for long-term recovery are accessible only for those of means. After I lost my son, I started a podcast series to try to make sense of it all and hopefully help others. Along the way, I've had the privilege of meeting some amazing people who are making a profound difference in the opioid epidemic. One of these people, Dr. Stephen Lloyd, is in recovery from opioid addiction himself. Dr. Lloyd specializes in treating addiction at the Mountain Home Veterans Administration Medical Center in Johnson City, Tennessee. We know that someone's best chance at long-term recovery from any substance use disorder is high-quality, long-term inpatient treatment followed by significant aftercare and follow-up for five years, he told me. This model has been utilized successfully with positive outcomes in more than 75% of the cases for doctors and airline pilots, he said. Tom Stuber, president and CEO of Lorain County Alcohol and Drug Abuse Services and widely recognized expert in the field of recovery, agrees on the need for long-term treatment. The brain takes a minimum of 35 weeks to stabilize. Research indicates that the longer treatment duration or length of engagement, the better the outcome. Conversely, the shorter the engagement, the greater the likelihood the patient will compromise the management of their illness. My cost estimate for a program like this, one that covers treatment over a five-year period, is 216000 per patient, half of which is physician follow-up with medication-assisted treatment. Nothing can be done to bring back the family members we've lost to the opioid epidemic over the last 25 years. But what can be done, and should be done, is earmark opioid settlement funds to provide one person 
the best chance at long-term recovery program for every life loss to the opioid epidemic in every state. According to the CDC, from 1999 to 2017, almost 400,000 lives were lost to overdose involving prescription and illicit opioids. That means setting aside $86.4 billion for treatment. I can think of no better way to honor those we've lost to the opioid epidemic than to offer the best hope of a new life in recovery through a settlement in memoriam. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.